Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and sociology. Today's topic is making cities more walkable. Our speaker is Jeff Speck, who is the author of the classic book, now in its 10th edition, entitled Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. I want to learn from Jeff why some cities are more walkable and what design changes can radically improve city life, why bike lanes and active pedestrian traffic make cities more vibrant and speedy cars so problematic. Buckle up. Let's begin with Jeff's opening six-minute remarks. I'm a city planner and trained as an architect. In order to make better cities, we need to make them more walkable. The epidemiologists, the environmentalists, and the economists have their own reasons for why walkability is so important in our communities. I will talk about my general theory of walkability. It asks the question, particularly in America, in which driving is so easy and so cheap, how do you create an environment in which people will make the choice to walk? And the answer is that the walk has to be as good as the drive. It needs to be useful. It needs to be safe. It needs to be comfortable and it needs to be interesting. The useful walk means that you have a great mix of uses, which is typically only possible in our downtowns and main streets where there's already a good amount of commercial use because it's pretty easy to add residential uses to places that are principally commercial. Doing it the other way around is really hard. In America, we have the unusual condition of downtown areas that have lost their housing and need to get it back in order to have that proper balance. Jane Jacobs talked about this in 1960 when she observed that Wall Street received 400,000 people every day, but it did not have one good restaurant or one good gym because it lacked what she called time spread, you know, that evening clientele as well as the lunchtime clientele that makes those things possible. Let's move on to the safe walk, which is where I spend most of my time. The typical street in America is not designed to be safe. And that's not a uniquely American flaw, but our engineers in this country excel at creating streets that welcome speeds well in excess of the speed limit. And so the question is, what are the things we can change in our streets to cause drivers to actually go the speed limit and to create an environment which is safe for pedestrians? And those include the number of lanes, the width of the lanes, the direction of travel, whether it's two-way or one-way in multiple lanes the presence of signals versus stop signs, the presence of even center lines. There's about a dozen factors that all play in. The comfortable walk is perhaps the most counterintuitive. Evolutionary biologists tell us that all animals, human among them, are simultaneously seeking prospect and refuge. We need to feel that our flanks are covered from attack or we do not feel comfortable in a space. So creating a space with good edges, with good street walls, with that sense of enclosure is essential to making those outdoor living rooms that attract people to walk through them. And then finally, there's the interesting walk, which has to do with a couple factors. The main one is variety, not the same building repeated over and over and over down the street. Because as Jane Jacobs said, no one will walk from sameness to sameness and repetition to repetition, even if the effort required is minimal. And finally, surface parking lots up against the sidewalk edge whether they're undeveloped sites or simply the way to access a store 24 or 7-Eleven, 
those are not only uncomfortable in terms of pushing the buildings away from the street in a way that eliminates that sense of outdoor living room, but also they're just dull and boring. So we make every effort to hide parking lots behind buildings to make sure the parking is at the rear. So you need to really do all four of those things in one place for it to be truly walkable. We look for the low-hanging fruit. It's typically in our downtowns and main streets where only a limited amount of effort needs to be made to accomplish that. And that's the focus of my practice, but also in what I try to teach the communities that I visit. You might notice that three of those four things, the useful, comfortable, and interesting walk, are a function of what's lining the streets. And that's principally the responsibility of the private market, which cities can influence, of course, through grants and through zoning and other things. But those are long-term influences the city has. In the very short term, cities can become more walkable by working in that safe category because they own the streets. Jane Jacobs said that the best community to emulate was Greenwich Village because of its narrow and short streets. Where she lived, yes. The short streets and frequent intersections allow pedestrians to randomly choose different routes across town. This increases the demand for retail on the ground floor. She also thought that the old ladies on the stoop could monitor the neighborhood reducing crime. Well, Jane Jacobs called it the need for small blocks. Back then, safety, of course, was much more about crime and eyes on the street and observation. These days, we don't focus on that as much because it's it, statistically, it's a much lower threat, of course, than moving automobiles. But if you make a place walkable, you do end up with more eyes on the street and crime issues are satisfied as well. In her famous book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, there are only three drawings. I believe she drew them. They're in this little subchapter called The Need for Small Blocks. And they show how businesses thrive or fail based on people walking past them and that people are much more likely to walk past more businesses when the blocks are smaller and you have more choices about what direction you're going in. Smaller blocks lead to smaller streets, which are safer and better for walking on. Portland, Oregon, has famously 200-foot blocks, and the typical street in Portland is about two lanes. Salt Lake City famously has about 600-foot blocks. Salt Lake City is known for being rather unwalkable, and the typical street in Salt Lake City is five or six lanes. Block density, or what we call the intersection density, how many intersections per square mile, is one of the clearest indicators you can find of how walkable a place is going to be. The UK uses the roundabout. It's relatively uncommon in the US, except for places like DuPont Circle. Does the roundabout improve the pedestrian experience? It's important to identify the different classifications of roundabout. There's the big old New England rotary, which is essentially a highway going around a circle, which we have in Massachusetts. There's the DuPont Circle style circular square, which actually has signals at every intersection and functions more like a collection of streets in a normal way that just happens to be round. And then there's the modern roundabout that came from Europe that now is starting to proliferate in the U.S. It is low speed. The way it functions, if properly designed, pedestrians are truly safe. Bicyclists are truly safe if bicycle accommodations are included in the design, which they've started to be, but until recently have not been. I do not like roundabouts as a main intersection in a shopping street because they still feel like an automotive environment. You know, they're a dynamic environment. Everyone's moving quite slowly and injury crashes are not occurring, 
but still everyone's moving and it feels like a place of motion, not a place of stasis or comfort, or should I say shopping and dining and that sort of thing. I'm a much bigger fan of the always stop sign. And in the US, when you signalize an intersection that could be an always stop sign, you actually increase the number of pedestrian injury crashes by more than double. During COVID, the use of public transportation collapsed. What needs to happen to bring us back to pre-COVID levels? Public transport is coming back. It will continue to resuscitate. And the main problem we have, of course, is understanding that transit subsidy is actually transit investment. And of course, investing in highways tends to only invite more congestion, whereas investing in transit results in more transit ridership, healthier lifestyles. The typical transit rider who switches from being a driver loses six pounds immediately, but also, of course, takes people off the streets to allow the drivers, the wealthier people who make the choice to drive, to have a better time of it. The number one thing we could do is stop underfunding our public transit systems because the externalities of driving are so much greater than the amount of subsidy that goes to transit. Retail is in trouble. Big malls in Chicago, like Water Tower, are struggling. On Michigan Avenue, in the heart of Chicago's retail district, the Disney store closed and was replaced by a store that sells only sugar cereals. Like Miracle Mile, almost. Northbrook Court is a major mall located near where I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. It was spectacular when it was built in the 70s, and it is now almost completely vacant. How does the demise of the mall relate to your desire for an interesting pedestrian experience? Well, the good news is that no one's going to miss them. These are real estate products that exist as just one more exit off of the freeway. And they have no real conception of placemaking or destination aside from the shops that were in them, which is why so many malls are dying. A very small minority of the existing malls in the U.S. are expected to last out the decade. It's largely because retail has bifurcated into convenience slash affordable retail, which you're either going to you know, Walmart or to Amazon and then into experience retail. And people now want authentic experiences, which, except in very rare places, the mall doesn't count towards an authentic experience. The brick-and-mortar retail stores that are going to survive are going to be those that are offering a enhanced experience. The main thing that distinguished a mall from a Main Street is that there was nothing there but shopping. And so it never became more than the sum of its parts. Its parts were shops. It could never be beloved because no one ever lived there, right? You can only really love a place if you live in it. But the main streets across our country that are part and parcel of residential neighborhoods or mixed-use neighborhoods that are more occupied now post-COVID, right, because people are working very close to them, those are social centers that people will always value and will care to do their shopping in as opposed to when they're just trying to be convenient or safe or cheap on Amazon or Walmart. I do see long-term resuscitation of many of these main streets, but there's no reason to see a mall come back unless it is remade into a mixed-use town center that might just happen to have a roof over its main street, but includes a ton of housing and workplace and other things so that it becomes a real community, not just a real estate product. Major European cities are very walkable. 
These city centers were built before the automobile, and they're great to walk around, but problematic to drive. What can we learn from the European experience? Well, Jan Gale put it this way. Jan Gale is the famous Scandinavian planner. He said, we learned in the second half of the 20th century that cars essentially behave like water. This pertains to Europe in particular. Those cities that gave them more space to fill, they filled. And those cities that gave them less space to fill appeared in less numbers. And that's because driving is what economists refer to as a free good. You pay so little for it compared to its actual cost to society that the smart thing to do is to do it all the time. If you own a car, the smart thing to do is to drive it all the time. It's simple economics. Given those circumstances, you can't ever satisfy the demand. Since the equilibrium is based on the amount of traffic that people are willing to put up with, and that if you reduce congestion, you invite more trips, essentially you're dealing with a constant. So when you look at these European cities that give very little room for automobiles, at least the ones I know aren't suffering in any way because of it, because people have adjusted their behavior and they still rely principally on other modes of transportation, or they live closer to home. And you know the typical European city is much smaller. Even the large cities are much smaller than ours with green belts surrounding them. It's a much more sustainable way to develop the land. If you build more lanes, travel time in rush hours unchanged, but the number of drivers goes up a lot. After all, it is a bigger road. Yes, but if you had made that same investment in another mode, particularly transit, although I would say walkability, if you can get more people living downtown, if you get more people who don't even have to move, <laughs> who don't even have to commute, because God knows the demand for downtown housing is so much higher than the supply. It's the most productive, effective way to provide new housing is in a downtown core where people snatch it up immediately. And then you've just reduced the number of people that actually need mobility. In Chicago, there's a major multi-year construction project on the Kennedy Expressway. Traffic is awful. It's so bad that going out Saturday night from the suburbs to downtown is not worth it. Better to find an alternative in the suburbs. Yet when you see the trains to the city, they are relatively empty on Saturday night. The schedule isn't frequent, and the train destinations are in the business district, which is far from the nightlife. Chicago is far from the worst offender. It's one of the better cities. In most cities now, housing and most work is so far flung and poorly organized that you can even have a wonderful transit system, but you get off on either end and then you, how do you get the last mile or the last four miles is a real problem. So what you're pointing out is a much more holistic challenge. And I think, you know, as we design new cities, it's very clear how to avoid those issues. But when you're looking at the typical American city, and I mean the typical American city, you know, the Scottsdales or the Hendersons, those are the cities where you really have to scratch your head and accept a principally automotive transportation system and then ask, what can we do to marginally impact people's quality of life, aside from telling them to move somewhere else? Tell us about the urban traffic catastrophe known as Los Angeles. Well, Los Angeles is a city that has a number of great neighborhoods that actually follow all the rules of great neighborhood design. But the problem is, of course, that most people in LA want to have access to all of LA and they might have friends or coworkers in all these different parts of LA, be it Silver Lake or Manhattan Beach, and getting between them is not easy. The nice thing though, is that most of these older downtowns are transit ready. That presents much better bones 
than, for example, a Scottsdale or a Henderson for introducing effective transit between communities. It's very clear that LA is a city that a real commitment to express bus lanes that connect the walkable centers to each other could fundamentally improve the quality of life of a lot of people. Is congestion pricing equitable? Congestion pricing really helps absolutely everybody on average having tolls on highways that reflect the demand on those highways at different times that vary in relation to that demand, they improve traffic flow dramatically. Let's say a highway has 10,000 cars on it right now, and none of those cars are moving. If you could have 8,000 cars on that highway that are all moving, then the utility of that highway skyrockets. And what congestion pricing does is it gets the 10,000 not moving, helping no one, down to the 8,000, all moving, helping everyone. And people are actually willing to pay. You know, if you can change your commute, even if you're a working class, if you can change it from a 90-minute commute to a 30-minute commute and pay 10 bucks for the privilege, you're making more than 10 bucks an hour, right? So there's a real logic there that is wrapped up, I would say, in other political considerations that are as much cultural as economic. Manhattan is considering congestion pricing below 61st Street. What will happen to traffic as you approach the congestion street border? These systems tend to adjust more collectively. So, for example, when a bike lane was put on Prospect Park West in Brooklyn, reducing that street by one lane, everyone presumed that throughput of that street would drop and the congestion on the parallel roads would increase. Neither of those things happened. The street carried as many cars as before and no traffic was shifted onto other streets. It's very hard to understand these things systematically. What people need to get through their heads about New York City is that the number of cars in New York City is exactly a function of the number of lanes in New York City. (laughs) New York City could have twice the number of lanes, they'd be equally crowded. It could have half the number of lanes, they'd be equally crowded. People have adjusted their behavior to the number of lanes available, and they will adjust their behavior again to whatever changes. The key point to make is that there's no way to change the equilibrium around the amount of traffic that people are willing to put up with every day, except one, and that is to make the cost of driving more in line with the value of driving. And then the economics begin to function, right? The reason why every new lane is taken up by new trips is because driving is what economists call a free good. If you make driving not a free good, if you make the laws of economics work by allowing the free market to function, by pricing things relative to their value, then suddenly you have people making proper choices about whether to drive or not, and you would have freer flowing traffic. There's talk that the congestion price that drivers will pay will be a function of income. Does that make sense? Intellectually, it does not make sense for me because... If you believe that poorer people deserve subsidies, then you should just give them subsidies. I'm not a fan of free transit, and I'm not a fan of even giving people housing subsidies when really we should just be giving them money. I believe in a society in which the poor get help, and they get help in a general way where they're able to make proper choices about how to spend their money. But the idea of identifying certain special aspects of life 
that need to be individually subsidized. Theoretically, I'm against it, but practically, I understand it because it's a way that our society can begin to level the playing field when it's not willing to do so in a more direct way. I moved to Miami Beach, which is a very walkable city. You used to live there as well. Tell us about Miami. So I lived in South Beach for 10 years. Miami is a city like Los Angeles that if you want to have access to all the best parts, you need a car because they're not conveniently connected by transit. Miami has its pre-war neighborhoods that are quite delightful. South Beach and Coconut Grove and Coral Gables. But they exist within a larger metropolis that is a driving metropolis and was organized principally after the rise of the automobile where people did not consider how to connect these neighborhoods in any other way. Miami is booming and it is a relatively new metropolis. Some say that if a city were new and booming, then city planners could properly incorporate good public transit. What happened in Miami? Well, you know, you got to follow the money. In Miami, it was the taxi owners who stopped transit from going from the airport to the beach, (laughs) for example. Almost every American city that grew up principally after World War II, the car was understood to be not just an instrument of freedom, but a prosthetic device that you would need to live your lives. And it was taken for granted because it was fun and great to drive. And most of us could. You know, only later were all the externalities that are ultimately destroying our health and our planet known. Next topic is bikes. When I walk around Manhattan, my biggest fear is the bikers and not the cars. Is that rational? Not following the rules of the road does indeed endanger pedestrians. The greatest risk to pedestrians is certainly, statistically, automobiles and not these bikes and e-bikes. But it is definitely a problem, and it's very difficult to fix, principally because policing of bicycles has historically been very racist (laughs) in its outcomes. And so before we knew this, it was very easy to say that this is an enforcement issue. But now the data make it clear that if you encourage the policing of bicyclists, that you're going to be disproportionately punishing people of color. And it's a real quandary that I don't know how to fix. You should know that I've not received a motion violation ticket for my car, but I have received a motion violation for my bike. The typical circumstance you see in the, I have great photos of this, is the cop that parks in the bike lane and then tickets you for leaving it. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about for pedestrians? I'm optimistic about what's happening in city after city. I see the biggest snowballing trend is probably the elimination of off-street parking requirements for real estate development. Minneapolis and Seattle and lots of other cities are getting rid of some or all of their requirements for developers to build or merchants to provide parking, which as parking guru Donald Shoup says, off-street parking is a fertility drug for cars. And these arbitrary and often completely random requirements that cities impose on developers or shop owners or office owners to provide parking is a very strong incentive for people to drive. The orientation we see in Massachusetts and now in California about orienting high-density housing around transit 
And then the elimination of the on-site parking requirements in city after city are all very optimistic trends that are happening. Thanks to Jeff for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast topic was Using Storytelling to Teach Medicine. Our speaker was Dr. Ari Cement, who is the author of a new book entitled Breathless Tales, Life, Laughter, and Lessons. Ari managed the COVID ward at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach when I was a patient recovering from COVID in December 2020. Ari has spoken more times on this podcast than any other guest. Ari discussed how he uses stories to teach his medical students, his doctor colleagues, and his nursing staff. We talked about his experience in the COVID ICU and why certain patients lived because of sheer will. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.